Welcome to Politics in Question, a podcast where we talk about how American political institutions are failing us and ideas for fixing them. I'm Julia Azari. I'm an associate professor of political science at Marquette University and blogger at Mischiefs of Faction. I'm James Wallner, a senior fellow at the R Street Institute. And I'm Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America. So today we're really excited to welcome a guest, Emily Sidnor, who's an assistant professor at Southwestern University and the author of the new book, Disrespectful Democracy, the Political Psychology of, of Political Incivility. So Emily, uh, thanks so much for joining us. Why don't you tell us a little bit about this book? Thanks so much, Julia, and I appreciate you guys having me. Um, yeah, so the, the book looks at the combination of two different things. Uh, essentially, the presence of incivility in the media, and I'll talk a little bit about what I mean about incivility in just a second, uh, and our sort of natural predispositions to be what I'm calling either conflict avoidant or conflict approaching. And the way in which these two things uh, interact to shape our um, emotional responses to news and, and media that we consume, the um, ways we engage with that information, and the differences in the quantity and quality of our political participation. And so when I talk about it in civility in this book, I'm thinking about it in one of several different ways that academics have conceived of the idea, and that's sort of closer to traditional norms of politeness. And so here we are um, thinking about things like name calling, um, belittling, insulting, personal attacks, um, the kinds of language that we see as outside of the norm of uh, kind of standard polite conversation. Um, we can think about it in a variety of other ways too that are tied more closely to um, sort of institutional and political norms about deliberation and what's acceptable in broader political processes. But here I'm really focusing on those, those politeness norms. Um, in terms of what sort of conflict approaching and conflict avoidant mean, we can think about it as sort of uh, how you'd respond you know, back when we would go to restaurants on a regular basis, kind of what's your reaction to someone having an argument in a restaurant? So if you're sitting at the table sort of minding your own business, having a lovely dinner, and a couple gets in an argument at the table next to you, um, some people's natural tendency is to sort of lean forward and say, oh, what's going on? I want to hear, um, I want to be sort of involved in the conflict. And other people's you know, almost physiological reaction, right, is to sort of lean away and sort of cover their eyes and say, you know, this is so embarrassing. I can't believe this is happening. I'm very uncomfortable. Um, and we, we are sort of arrayed along a continuum there. So not, you know, you're not either completely uncomfortable necessarily or completely involved, uh, some people are going to be somewhere in the middle. And some of these things are related to other personality traits, to things like gender and age, and we can talk a little bit more about that if you'd like. Uh, but what I thought was most interesting is it's not correlated with partisanship or the strength of your party ID. So I really thought that uh, when I went into this project that strong partisans might be more likely to be more open to conflict. Uh, and that turned out not to be the case across any of the samples that I used in the book. So, so to kind of take this back to the overarching picture, I find that people that don't like conflict tend to have more negative emotional reactions to incivility that's present in the media. Um, they behave differently in the context of their information search. Um, since they feel more anxious, 
uh, and sort of more negative reactions to the incivility in the first place, they tend to search out more of it, um, which seems sort of counterintuitive, but could get them caught in sort of a spiral of negative media experiences. Um, and then it changes both the types of participation that people are involved in. So conflict avoidant people tend to engage less in types of engagement that might lead them to expose themselves to conflict. They don't like protesting as much or having to try to convince someone to vote um, the same way they do. And they also talk about politics differently. So in the presence of incivility out there in the political world, people who like conflict, who are more conflict approaching, uh, are more likely to share their opinions about politics, to sort of engage in a conversation about it, uh, things like that. Okay, great. So we are going to tackle this this question about uh, incivility and, and put it in kind of broader context, building on your work in the field of political psychology. So our, our big question we're going to tackle is how much incivility is bad for democracy? So we're, we're going to do the part now where we usually state our existing views on the questions. So we'll go around and, and do that. And I'll start by saying that on the one hand, um, I'm, I'm very suspicious of arguments that suggest that incivility is a big problem in American politics. And I think that that gets used against the less powerful, particularly women, racial minorities, um, LGBT individuals, you know, demanding equal treatment or being disruptive in order to demand change and get what's, you know, sometimes called tone policed um, in keeping with this notion that uh, of, of avoidance of conflict or that it's not polite. And so I'm really suspicious of these, uh, kinds of uh, civility arguments made in the context of improving American democracy. But I will say Emily's book got me really, you know, thinking more deeply about this, which we'll talk about over the course of the episode. And the other, the other thing we're going to talk about in this portion of the program is we're all going to go around and, and kind of self-assess uh, and reflect on whether we think we're conflict avoidant or conflict approaching. And I think, I think I'm sort of in the middle um, but tending toward maybe the avoidance side. Lee? Yeah. So, I mean, w when I think about conflict in politics, I sort of feel like politics has to be about conflict because the things that we largely agree on are not going to be political issues. I mean, politics should be the fora where we, you know, fight about the things that we don't otherwise agree about. And, and I guess some level of incivility comes from people having heated views. But, you know, I think Emily's book has certainly helped me to think a little bit more about the relationship between incivility and conflict and think about ways in which you can have conflict that is productive and conflict that devolves into just name calling. Uh, and you know, so I want to dig deeper into that. I, you know, I also... One thing that I, I think that sometimes happens in these conversations about civility is that we don't appreciate how much civility or incivility is a function of larger structural factors like the nature of, of political conflict or the substance of partisan conflict or the media. And, and you know, that's one of the things that I really am eager to hear Emily's thoughts on the, the sort of broader structural factors, because I think just telling people to be more or less civil misses the, the 
broader reasons why politics is more or less civil at a particular moment. As for myself, I'm a bit conflicted over how conflict uh, approaching or avoiding I am. I think I like to argue, uh, but I, I also like to resolve those arguments. I, I don't like to go to bed angry. Uh, and so I think I'm, I'm a little bit conflict approaching it, it, when I know it's a safe space uh, where, you know, where everybody respects everybody else. Uh, I, I don't seek fights on Twitter. So maybe I'm a little conflict avoiding too. All right. So we know now is Lee likes safe spaces. Um, I'm sorry. I could not help myself. Uh, James, what do you think? Hey, I, I put it out there. This it's is a true. safe space, right? You, you owned your sa- your need for a safe space. James, what do you think? I like conflict. I think there's no secret about that, at least talking about conflict, perhaps in a more abstract or general way. I don't think people like conflict in their personal lives. I don't think people uh, typically run towards conflict like moths to flames very often. But I do think when it comes to politics, I I typically like conflict. I think it's a valuable thing. I think it's an essential thing. And I'm very intrigued by how we are, how we relate to conflict. And that's one of the things that I loved about this book is because it got me thinking about how different people relate to conflict and to civility and incivility and what that says about our broader politics. So I'll be very interested in, in discussing that more. But I I think it's really important to be very specific about, and I hope that we will be, about what we mean by civility or incivility. I think then, you know, the consequences of that incivility, the question of whether we're more uncivil today than we have been in the past. And if we are, what does that say about our politics and, and how we how we understand our uh, politics. But more broadly, and I think this is something that underlies how I see the world, the fundamental foundational question of who decides what is civil and uncivil, where do they decide it, and how do they decide it? And in a self-governing uh, society, a polity like ours, it's, it's very hard to do that and to make those decisions without conflict. And so these are kind of foundational questions that I, that I hope to wrestle with today. And I don't need safe spaces. Um, okay, we, we've noted who needs a safe space and who, who doesn't, which is uh, not something that I had planned on asking everyone, but I'm glad that I know. Um, I'm glad we were able to share this. So, uh, Emily, do you want to add anything here or join in the, uh, the self-reflection? Uh, sure. I, I, uh, think that you guys both reflect some pretty standard assessments of where Americans fall uh, on this sort of scale of conflict orientation that across samples we saw something that looked relatively similar to a bell curve with the average falling just below sort of a neutral midpoint. So the average American was relatively conflict avoidant, but, you know, still, I think, like someone said, uh, you know, likes, likes, recognizes the importance of conflict or uh, sees that there are reasons in politics in particular we might need to have conflict and can sort of handle that accordingly. I think the other important thing that um, is key to keep in mind here is that while the conflict orientation sort of is this personality trait that dictates how we, we sort of experience conflict, it doesn't necessarily tell us um, quite as much about how we might resolve it. 
And so one of the really interesting things that we can think about is, you know, even if someone is conflict avoidant, what do they do when they are in a conflict situation? If someone is conflict approaching, it doesn't mean that they're just going to sort of steamroll around spreading disagreement and discord wherever they go. They might still want to resolve them as neatly as and quickly as possible. But this, the conflict resolution strategies we use are correlated but still independent from the personality trait we experience. Um, I think that the uh, the other sort of important set of priors, I guess I'll lay out like you guys were talking about earlier, is that I agree with almost everything that y'all have mentioned already, right? That that conversations about civility and who decides what is civil or uncivil are sort of fundamentally important for thinking through some of these issues. And it does raise really serious concerns, as Julia mentioned, about um, sort of the ways in which we use the label of civility to silence different groups or um, police conversation. And um, hopefully we can get into some of that as we continue our conversation. Yeah. So I want to take what we've said here about the research that you've done about these personality traits and put this into the larger context of, of citizenship in a democratic political system. So I've been thinking and thinking about something that you wrote in the introduction of your book, um, which is, you have this sentence, the rise of incivility in political media has changed the nature of who gets involved by changing the resources needed to successfully engage with the style and structure of political discourse. And that just struck me so much because it, it maps onto all of my existing beliefs and concerns about the different ways in which we build barriers to full participation and citizenship in other realms of political life in terms of how difficult it is to vote and register to vote or how difficult it is to be involved in the political process, how much time it takes, how much, you know, how many kind of civic resources it takes. And here you've you've you know made me think about that in a new way. So I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about this change, how it alters how people engage with political media and maybe speculate on the the implications for all citizens having equal access to the political process. Sure. So one of the biggest concerns I had when I started thinking about the way that this trait might manifest and play out in politics was that there were correlations in the psychological research between um, conflict orientation and other demographic characteristics that we see as tending to, um, for structural and other reasons, hinder political participation. So women tend to be more conflict avoidant. People that are members of minority groups tend to be um, more sort of broadly conflict avoidant than members of majority groups. Um, although I think that has a sort of narrative about socialization and recognizing when you can in fact engage in conflict and not. But what this suggested to me was that that created sort of an overlapping and compounding set of inequalities that people had to engage with, right? If you are, um, right, if women are sort of systematically less likely to engage in certain types of political uh, activities and people that don't like conflict are less likely to do that and those two things go together, then there's this clearly this set of of people that are being left out that are that much it's that much more difficult for them to engage in the process and so for me that's sort of the one of the broader concerns about sort of equal access and participation you asked also about sort of engagement with media and the concerns it raises for me there is that we might also be seeing um, and the book doesn't test this directly but i think it, it suggests that this might be the case um, 
differences in sort of what information people remember and use to make their political decisions or use to just understand what politics as a general entity is like. Um, so if you're trying to decide, hey, is this something I'm interested in? Or, oh, I, I know I should be paying attention to politics. Let me try to you know, tune into the news and you turn on MSNBC or you look at Twitter or, you know, take, name your own personal favorite news um, organization and people are screaming at each other or calling each other names or engaging in some sort of uncivil behavior and you don't like conflict, your sort of immediate reaction is like, oh, I'm turning that off, right? I'm gonna go back to my entertainment programming or to the novel I was reading or one of hundreds of other things that we can be doing with our time that aren't political. And so you see in the same way that we might be concerned about uh, selective exposure to media in the context of partisanship, we see selective exposure along other dimensions as well. And these dimensions correlate with things that we think are important um, in a democracy. And, and so we want to be cognizant of the ways in which those dividing lines might, might be there. I know Lee wanted to jump in here, but I want to ask a quick follow-up, which is how, how much do we know about how people experience these different kinds of conflict? Like is conflict avoidance or conflict approaching behavior? Is that always kind of uniform across the way you might experience it? Like is, so like to use your restaurant example, there's two strangers in a restaurant or there's talking heads on MSNBC or there's people on Twitter that maybe you know or maybe you don't know. Do we experience all of those forms of conflict sort of similarly or is there some ability to detach or perceive differently if it's just, you know, Chris Matthews or somebody yelling on, on TV versus versus it being live or being someone you know? So most of what I focus on in uh, the book is is video related. So I'm looking at television as, as most of the stimuli. Um, I have some evidence in another piece I've done that we perceive civility differently across different types of media. So um, the same language on a video might be seen as more uncivil than language in a news, the same language in a newspaper or um, even on Twitter. And so that suggests that maybe we are assessing the civility differently, but the conflict orientation, the way we're responding to conflict um, ourselves, I don't, I don't think changes based on the kind of medium. Uh, and, and I'll say this in part because one of the things I do in the book is look at different types of television shows. Uh, so one of the things that uh, a colleague of mine kept asking me was like, okay, but I don't like conflict in politics, but I love sports. And so is this orientation that you're focused on um, what psychologists call domain specific. So is it something unique to politics and I can be conflict avoidant in politics, but conflict approaching in my sports life. And so to look at that, I looked at people's reactions both to political stimuli that are uncivil, but also to entertainment stimuli. So the one I use the most are some clips from the TV show MasterChef, uh, where there's uh, judges are discussing a pasta dish and one of them likes it and says, um, you know, has some critiques, but they're done in a very civil way. And the other uh, uses some uncivil language and colorful language to describe this pasta dish. And people react relatively similarly in both situations. So in the political um, example, when people saw incivility in politics, uh, conflict avoidant people, for example, felt more anxious and angry. When they saw the MasterChef clip, they also felt more anxious and angry. And so I think that in general, those 
those patterns are happening regardless of where we encounter it. Although as um, was mentioned earlier, there might be some slight differences between sort of face-to-face -face interpersonal incivility and experiencing it in a mediated form. Oh, thanks. Yeah, great. I, I know I love that you included MasterChef. My, my husband loves those cooking shows where everyone's insulting each other. And I, I find them very stressful. Um, Lee, you want to jump in here? You had some, some comments you wanted to make. Yeah, so I sort of wanted to move the conversation from the, uh, the mass participation level to a question of who goes into politics and who runs for elected office and you know, and who ascends to higher office. Now, I think here about the National Institute for Civil Discourse and uh, you know, the sort of broader civility industry, which I think has, has popped up with a lot of organizations over the last few years, uh, the National Institute for Civil Discourse is an interesting organization. It was formed in response to uh, the tragic Gabby Giffords shooting to, uh, quote, promote healthy and civil political debate. And part of my thinking about this institute is informed by a friend of mine who used to work there. And I think he went in somewhat idealistically and, you know, he would work on these bipartisan retreats with state legislators and everybody would say all these nice things about all the reasons they got into office. And, you know, even some of the participants would even take the, the civility stuff to heart. But he... He left somewhat frustrated because he found that the only people who actually stuck with it were uh, people who really had no ambition to move beyond being a rank and file state legislator. And anybody who had any uh, aspirations to move up in either a state legislature or, or in a national office basically uh, you know, would say all this stuff that's nice about civil politics and then go off and, and be aggressive. Uh, and that was you know, a sense of of how you rose up in office. Uh, so I, I guess, you know, the broader question is thinking about the way in which uh, the political environment kind of reinforces certain types of behavior. And, and I also uh, thinking uh, this makes me think of the work of, of Daniel Thompson, uh, who's at uh, UC Irvine, who's written a really interesting book about how moderates opt out of politics because they don't see themselves fitting within either party. And I, I, one of the things that you Emily, you, you said uh, earlier that, you know, I think it is is interesting uh, in this context is the extent to which partisan, the strength of partisanship is is not related to conflict avoidance. But I imagine that there are some people who are both politically uh, extreme as well as conflict seeking. And it seems like maybe that that combination uh, is particularly rewarded in politics. So, I mean, I, I think a lot about reinforcing feedback loops operating in politics. So I just w would love it if you could kind of riff on the way in which the incentives kind of shape how we think about this. Sure. So I think first, I would just want to say that if I could get um, right a set of elected officials to take this um, conflict communication scale, which is the measure I use to assess conflict orientation, I think that'd be fantastic, right? That I am, I suspect that many elected officials are higher than the average American um, on that scale, meaning that they are more conflict approaching than the average American. Um, because we've, as we've recognized several times throughout this, this conversation, politics is about conflict. It's right, it's about distributing resources, it's about making sure that you know your group is getting what you want them to, right? Whether that's constituents or some other 
you know, group that you're a part of, uh, but there are certainly incentive structures that reinforce this, right? That we know, for example, that the media, even in its sort of most objective, you know, six network news channels heyday, was reinforcing ideas about conflict, right? That drama and personalization and a sense that what we want to focus on is disagreement and not ag agreement, right? Covering agreement feels boring and no one is going to read it. Uh, that that is an incentive structure that rewards politicians who want media coverage by encouraging them to disagree, to do it in ways that are going to catch uh, the eye of people that are writing stories. And, and so from that perspective, there are certainly incentives. You know, there, have, there are other incentives within um, an adversarial legislative structure, right? That we've designed a system that encourages disagreement. The question is, you know, does that disagreement need to be civil? When is it appropriate for it to be uncivil? If we're talking about civility and incivility as sort of uh, a commonly accepted set of norms, there are incentives and rules in place in, say, Congress um, to discourage incivility, but that doesn't mean that they, they don't still, it doesn't still appear occasionally. Fascinating. So, James, you want to weigh in here before I want to actually return to this norms thing, but uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw you into the conversation here first. Right. So, I, so you're saying essentially that Game of Thrones is more entertaining to people because there's a lot of people with their heads getting chopped off than say a committee hearing on C-SPAN, which is there's just no conflict there. Unfortunately, yes. Unfortunately. Well, you know, I'm going to I want to dive into this a little bit, but I often think about conflict in politics in terms of the necessity of politics, and I think you highlighted a very important point, which is that conflict in in and of itself is just more interesting. And that in it invites people into politics. It's how we hold our politics accountable. It's how we mobilize and we participate and in all of those things. But before we really talk about or dive into the necessity of conflict, if we even do so, I, I tend to, I think it's helpful to keep in mind when we think about consensus versus compromise and how compromise, it, it requires conflict. We have to have a better understanding of what we mean by good conflict and bad conflict. And there's a fine line there. And I think there's no exact way to delineate that that line. I mean, I do think we can all agree, hopefully, that political conflict is better than violent conflict, certainly. But beyond that broad kind of slicing of the issue, you can't really delineate it. But I do think it's important to keep in view that in, in our view here that there is such a thing as good conflict. And, and to do that, I try to discipline myself in approaching this topic as thinking about the things that that conflict produces. And if you think about this concept of civility itself, it arose out of incivility. It arose out of conflict and unfortunately violent conflict of the, you know, the 16th and 17th century Europe. Uh, Teresa Bejan's Mere Civility is a fabulous book. I would encourage our listeners to, to, to check it out as well. And, and she really dives into the different notions of, of civility of Hobbes and Locke and Americans' own um, Roger Williams. And how it produces in this time tolerance, these conflicts, it produces this concept of civility, of tolerance, of religious liberty, of free speech. All of these ideas are forged during this very, very chaotic, very uncivil 
time. And, you know, and I think about, you know, Soren Kierkegaard driving around the, the downtown Copenhagen. And he would often get the carriage and he would shorten up the whatever you call the rope that ties the horses to the carriage. I don't know the terminology here, but he would do that so that he would get his um, his colleagues, the people who were riding around town with them sick so that they would then see the world in a different way. And that would create a tension in their kind of body, a physical reaction. And even thinking about Dr. King's letter from the Birmingham city jail, where he's, you know, he's talking about the value of good, of good tension. And just as Socrates, he says, felt that it's necessary to create a tension in the mind. We need to create a tension. We need nonviolent gadflies to create the kind of tension in society that will allow him to, to conquer injustice. And so I guess my question, I'm kind of rambling here though, is that incivility produces good things sometimes. And to what extent is the coarseness of our politics today driven, I think, by our inability to be uncivil on really big things? And to the extent that we have larger numbers of people who may be conflict avoidant, who don't want to react in the public realm in the same way, um, precisely for the reasons you point out, does that hinder our ability to do big things in politics? Because the 60s was a very uncivil time. And then you look at what Congress was able to do in terms of legislative productivity, it was extraordinary. If you think about the Enlightenment period, it all arose out of this kind of um, the the post-Reformation era Europe, which was a very uncivil place. And so um, I, I worry about our inability to fight over important issues today. Yeah, so so do I. <laughs> but, but and, and this was part of when I was wrapping the book up, one of the things that I wanted to make sure was really clear was that I am not necessarily advocating for um, sort of straight civility, right? That I don't think that the solution here is to return to, um, right, some sort of idealized past that doesn't really exist in which we all spoke really nicely to one another and we had disagreements, but they were done in a very polite and rational and calm tone, right? That, that when people talk about that sort of conversation. It's the exact sorts of conversations that Julia was mentioning earlier, right? Where we're essentially saying like, oh, I'm sorry, you can't sit here, right? This is the whites only section of the restaurant, in which case, sure, that's civil in the way that I've defined it in the book, but that's not a good democratic, just society. Um, and so we can certainly use civil language to mask all sorts of, of problematic um, and really serious divisions um, and that incivility, right, in the context, as you said, of, say, the civil rights movement can actually help move us towards a more democratic society. The other piece of that that I was going to say something about, I completely lost. So I'm just going to leave it there and you can jog my memory later. Or we'll come back to it. And just to follow up, though, I think one thing that's so fabulous about your book is, is helping us to understand how we react to incivility and to conflict both in the way that you define it in the book empirically and also, I think, more broadly. And it encourages us all to be more self-reflective in that. And I guess one question just to ask you to speculate is that if we have large numbers of people who react in a, in a negative way to conflict um, or to incivility, does that limit our, in your, in your mind, does that limit your, our ability to kind of do politics? And 
I think this is, you know, one of the things I look out and see right now is I think more and more people on all from all kind of walks of life all across this continuum, the ideological continuum today, are beginning to see conflict as a bad thing in politics. And and they aspire to kind of in a very theoretical way rule as opposed to participate alongside one's equals in making collective decisions. And and I'm wondering, and I'm just thinking out loud here, the extent to which that is related to their uncomfortableness with, uh, with the kind of give and take and the uncivil nature of politics more generally. So I think that's a a, a concern I share in a lot of ways, um, and I'll have to sort of keep thinking about about some pieces of it. But but part of what I am sort of concerned about, right? And I think that so I think that conflict avoidant having a population that is, is on average slightly conflict averse relative to you know, others doesn't have to be uh, something that is, is sort of dooming democracy or dooming politics, right? That um, like I was saying before, just because you don't like conflict doesn't mean that you can't figure out ways to handle it, handle it in positive and, and constructive ways. Uh, but it probably means that yet you need some more training and, and sort of help realizing how to manage it, right? So one of the examples I use um, is that, right, lots of us are, are, from a young age, really uncomfortable speaking in public, but there are lots of, of jobs now in America and elsewhere that require you to speak in front of people on a regular basis. And we spend a lot of time, for example, in K-12 education, practicing presentations, giving, um, students uh, spaces where they can talk in front of audiences that are slightly more comfortable and just and just giving them skills um, and tips for how to become better public speakers so that maybe they always get butterflies and feel a little nervous before a, a big presentation but they can still do it and they can do it in a professional and effective way and so what I wonder is is there what are the, the tools that we could give conflict avoidant people to say hey you know Politics is, co is about conflict and we can't change that and we shouldn't change that. But you as a democratic citizen need to be involved in it. So here are the, the skills and, and you know, cognitive tricks and things like that that you can do to feel more comfortable in a political setting. That sort of increasingly, I, I, in a political interest and conflict orientation are correlated so that people that are more interested in politics are also more, uh, tend to be more conflict approaching. But that doesn't mean that there aren't people out there, right? people presumably like me, who are both probably more conflict avoidant, but also really interested in politics. And in the, in the surveys I did in the book and the experiments, I didn't have a sort of large enough sample to make any broad generalizable claims about who those people are and what kind of behaviors they, they engage in. But I think it would be really interesting to, to talk more with, with a set of them, right? To say, okay, you really like politics, but you really dislike conflict. What are you doing? How are you engaging? How do you see your role as a democratic citizen? So that we can try to unpack maybe where those people uh, can best engage. Because one of the interesting things I found uh, kind of going into this was I thought that incivility would produce, say, positive emotions among people that liked conflict, but that civility would do so uh, for people that didn't like conflict, for the more conflict avoidant. And I don't see that as, as being the case in the, in the experiments I do, which suggests that, you know, you said politics is entertaining or conflict is entertaining. The lack of conflict is not entertaining for people that don't like it. 
which was a convoluted way of saying, civility isn't solving that part of the problem. And so we need to think a little bit more about what needs to, how we can fit those different puzzle pieces together. Fascinating. So I want to actually hand this over back over to Lee, who had some questions about history and then um, get back into this, the norms uh, question. So Lee, you want to take it away? We love to talk about history on this podcast. And, and I, I want to ask you to expand on uh, two historical observations uh, that you make in the book. One is that you write that throughout uh, American history, media coverage of politics has compounded political incivility. And you also note that history suggests that uh, we should not be surprised by shouting, character assassination, and other fighting words during times of political upheaval. So I think it's really easy uh, when we're in a moment to think that, that the moment that we're living in is truly exceptional. Uh, but you know, often that perceived exceptionality is really a function of not having enough history or context. Uh, so when it comes to our long history of incivility, uh, I, I'm wondering if you can help us to think about what is exceptional and what is ordinary about what we're going through these days. And uh, you know, are, are we in a unique period of upheaval? And is that why things feel more uncivil? So I think uh, one of the I'm not sure how common I want to say this, but one of the more common, I think, misconceptions about the incivility of current politics is that it is somehow unique. And we can look throughout history and identify um, all sorts of, of instances of uncivil political rhetoric, right? Thinking about the founding and sort of interactions between Hamilton and Adams and Jefferson and all of these um, you know, men that we think of as sort of the, the great compromisers of the early generations of Americans, and we can see incivility there. What's different now, I think, is the media environment that we find ourselves in that facilitates our exposure to and our ability to share our own incivility. Right? So part of what we see is, um, for example, an increase in the past 20 years in negative advertising, in um, spaces like cable news or social media where you can more directly experience incivility from you, you know, the comfort of your own living room. And uh, at the same time, that make it very easy for you to express your own um, political feelings in a way that um, is uncivil, right? That, that we no longer have the gatekeepers that were sort of demanding a particular type of at least politeness of um, right, letters to the editor. You weren't going to get a letter to the editor published if uh, it had all sorts of obscenities in it, but you can go on Twitter now and share it until someone flags it, it's gonna stay up. And so I think the difference here is not necessarily the presence or absence of uncivil rhetoric, but how accessible it is to the average person. Um, which makes it feel more present than it was before. I wanted to kind of also move in a different direction and really bore down once again into the the definition and nature of incivility, which which sort of builds on what we're talking about here as we put it in historical context. An example that you write about in the book that has stuck with me both from your book and the incident itself is this thing where the the manager of the Red Hen restaurant in Virginia is asking then um, Trump press secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders to leave. So I wanted to ask you to to expand and reflect on this incident and what it says about American politics and how we think about incivility right now. 
Sure. Uh, I think one of the things that it, it highlights is exactly how difficult it is to actually come up with some sort of objective standard for assessing civility or incivility. That even when we look at uh, surveys where we ask people, you know, if you could create a rule book about civility and politics, like what would be in it, uh, that there's some variation in, um, you know, for example, whether or not we think interrupting people in public forums is, is something that is civil or uncivil. And a lot of that is not only about sort of whether, you know, whether or not we assess specific actions, but who is doing the action, right? So in the debate around the red hen and um, the owner asking Sarah uh, Huckabee Sanders to leave, your partisanship dictated pretty clearly which side of that debate you were going to be on, right? That most Democrats thought that the um, owner's decision was absolutely the right one and it's her restaurant and she can kind of do what she wants with it and it's not at all uncivil. She was very polite and both of them really in the interaction, no one said anything that would sort of be classified um, under a lot of the, the codes that academics use to characterize civility. There was very little civil language but that clearly what ended up mattering more was not the presence or absence of the civility itself, um, but the framing of the event um, as civil or uncivil. And I think this is sort of increasingly where some of this research needs to go, um, is, is that in any given sort of exchange or, or public confrontation, I'll stick with public confrontations for now, right, we can see what um, sociologists call civility contests, right? That what we're actually doing is, is sort of trying to steer a course where we tell the, you know, the rest of the world how to interpret this, this specific thing in the context of a set of, of norms. That by calling something civil or uncivil, we're actually um, saying, look, this is outside of the norms that you should be accepting for political conversation, even if the language itself is uh, actually you know, perfectly polite, and and that that has some pretty serious implications. Um, that it that in the way that we signal and understand different events. So I feel like in some ways I just walked around your question. So keep pushing me if you want me to. But uh, I think that really what it highlights is that the label is just important as what we actually say. Oh, you know, this is appropriate or not appropriate. Yeah. So to, to build on that, I, you know, one thing that you write about this incident is that it violates social norms. And I wanted to ask a little bit about how, how important it is, you know, how important are social norms as a, as a way to help us understand civility? Is civility always kind of indexed to these norms? So like civility is only, is really measured into distance from, you know, the behavior that norms would dictate. And if these norms change, then does the, the definition of civility change is it possible in that sense to maybe, it seems like our, our narrative around civility is like society is becoming coarser and coarser. And you, you hear this a lot. And I, I think this is linked to some of the tone policing that I talked about before, but this sort of idea, you also hear this in, in um, critics of, of president Trump, of course, right. That this is coarse in the discourse. And now everybody is behaving in a certain way um, or using certain types of language in their political discourse. So it's ratcheting up. Is it possible to ratchet back down and, you know, change the norms such that the discourse would become, you know, more, I don't know, I guess if, if I'm arguing that civility is inherently 
ratchet is inherently indexed to norms, then that wouldn't make it more civil, but that it would make it less, I don't know, less filled with swear words or personal insults or um, these kinds of confrontations that you describe at the red hen or whatever, you know, is it, is it possible to move in the other direction? What do you think about that? So I think it is possible to move in the other direction, but that it's not clear to me necessarily what the mechanism is by which we would do that. Um, so we see changes over time in what counts as civil, right? That in the sort of surveys I was talking about earlier, um, Allegheny College did one in, in 2010 and then the same thing in 2016, and they asked about this set of, of situations, you know, do people think they are civil or uncivil? And one of them, for example, um, in 2010, uh, something like 89% of respondents said that comments about someone's race or ethnicity would be against the rules of civility. But in 2016, only 69% of people said the same thing. And so that's an example, actually, of, of what you were describing uh, in terms of language perhaps becoming more coarse and it's more acceptable to do things like make comments about someone's race. We can, one, then think about whether we think that is could actually be productive, right, to sort of know all of these things that people are thinking are now sort of out there in the open. But but to speak more directly to your your question, I don't see any, any reason why we can't also move in the opposite direction, right? That we have examples of moments where things got, you know, very uncivil and moved towards violence, right? This is um, what a lot of the research that Nathan Kelmo is doing sort of talks about. And we've moved back, right? Like we, it, it hasn't been easy. And I, I don't particularly want us to, you know, approach the brink of something like the Civil War to have to scale back down and change our norms about what um, acceptable discourse is. Um, but there are certainly things that we can think of that have happened on, say, the you know, in Congress that would no longer be acceptable today, right? Like no one is is, I hope, going to be caned on the floor. And so there's some speculation that we see sort of increases in incivility at times of greater polarization. and and so to the extent that those two things are linked, we could imagine a changing of norms as, polarization decreases also. I would like to just jump in real quick on this notion because it's something I wrestle with myself. And I try to look at politics and political conflict as something that is is fundamentally different than violent conflict. And I think we have a tendency today to see conflict is existing on a continuum. And if you go too much conflict, then eventually we're going to spill over into violence. And I think that 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 may be the case, but I think it's people opting for a different way of solving problems. And you can, and I'm not sure lots of incivility in politics necessarily leads inevitably to violence. I think there's a decision that, that that's made at some point. And I, you know, I think our difficulty with the definition of civility stems, I think, from our unwillingness or our inability to do politics. And as I was saying earlier, I think politics, it opens up things. It it gives us, because we all have unique perspectives on the world, it gives us a better understanding of that reality in the round. It produces awareness. And I think the interactions that like you cover in your in the in the book, I think a lot of those leave us frustrated because we we're not we're not really doing politics per se. And and I'm wondering just to shift perspectives briefly, and I know we're running short on time, but instead of how we react to incivility, to ask you to speculate a little bit about how people are, the people who are acting in an uncivil manner on television. And 
why are they doing that? Because it seems to me that if there are conflict avoidant people out there or even conflict approaching people, if you're acting in a very uncivil way intentionally, that limits your ability to persuade. And if you can't, and if you're not persuading, you're writing off whole swaths of people and you are, you're no longer really participating in politics in that sense. You're doing something else. You're doing entertainment, you're doing whatever else it may be. And it seems like there's a pivot in our society away from politics with a small P towards this other thing where, you know, incivility is, we see it as a problem, but at the same time, we can't figure out what is and is not uncivil. And we can't figure out how to solve that problem because we are averse to the activity that allows us to do so. Yeah. So I think there are, there are a bunch of different things that I could say in response, and I'm going to try not to ramble so that we can uh, sort of keep going with the conversation. But the two, the two sort of quick takeaways, I think the first is, um, so I, I recently read uh, I attend Hirsch's political uh, politics is for power book. And so I've been thinking a lot about, he has this idea about political hobbyists and how, you know, there are people who are doing, I think, doing politics the way that you described it, right? Where you are trying to affect real change and, and acquire power to make some sort of political improvements or what you see as political improvements. And, and I've been sort of thinking about, well, what does that look like for different people who respond to conflict in different ways, right? Are the, are the, the people who are truly doing politics that are just sort of like sitting there and reading Twitter and being entertained, right? What, what sort of conflict orientations do they have and what sorts of skills do they have to be, uh, right? He talks a lot about deep canvassers and sort of those are people who in the face of potentially great incivility produce persuasive and compelling change by engaging in a slightly different way. And so that's, that's one angle I'm sort of thinking about and it's an incomplete one, but I wanted to throw that out there. Um, the other piece, um, I know you guys had Dana Young on, uh, I think last week, and, and I think the other piece of this that you raised is really central to her argument about um, sort of the aesthetics of outrage, that for a lot of people, incivility is still entertaining. And so it's not that they're necessarily trying to be persuaded. You watch it because you agree with it already, and, and it's reinforcing how you feel um, about politics rather than convincing you to take any new steps or sort of as you said sort of do politics all right we i feel like we could talk about this for so long um but um but we need to wrap up so we've got a wrap-up question and this is uh kind of once again pushing us into history can we assess historical political figures on their level of conflict avoiding versus conflict approaching behavior are we in the most conflict approaching presidency ever in the Trump presidency? Are there examples of successful conflict avoiding politicians? So Emily, you want to get us started on this question? So I, I struggle a little bit to come up with a good answer to this question in part because I think as I've, I've been saying throughout our conversation, it's some, like, it is sometimes hard to figure out exactly where someone falls in terms of orientation because they can try to resolve conflict in different ways. And so I can certainly think of presidents that have been better at dealing with conflict than others. Um, but we do see, certainly in, in sort of the context of uh, Donald Trump, we do see someone who seems to be much more comfortable with, uh, you know, being in sort of constant confrontation of having public arguments, some of these things that uh, would lead someone to score more highly, more conflict approaching on 
this measure of conflict orientation. Okay, yeah. So I, I really take this point about how hard it is to tell. And this reminds, I'm going to now just like answer my own question and then I'll let Lee and James talk. But um, the thing that I first thought about when we were um, putting this question together is um, this book about Dwight Eisenhower by Fred Greenstein called The Hidden Hand Presidency that essentially is all about all about Eisenhower's various efforts to make, uh, you know, to hide political conflict and to make other people take responsibility for it. And so that was my answer was this sort of the, the presidency that most made a political project of concealing conflict maybe was at least in modern memory was was Eisenhower but we we know from some of the archival evidence that's come to light later that that was a bit of a performance okay um Lee I'm gonna hand it to you James you're gonna bring us home and then we we gotta wrap up yeah I think well let's I think it's actually now that we've had this conversation I think it makes it much harder to assess conflict avoiding versus conflict approaching politicians and you know i guess this is seems to be a broader point is that there's a bit of both in a lot of us and so the broader question becomes about the political environment in which politicians are operating so i mean if we we think about eisenhower and trump uh as you know potential uh, different ends of a spectrum, although maybe Eisenhower is more complicated and maybe historical archives will show that Trump is more complicated. In fact, there's some evidence that suggests that in private, Trump is actually more conflict avoiding, that he often caves and that in public, he's more conflict seeking. And so then there becomes this question of the performative aspect of politics versus the private aspect of politics. And I think it's something that a theme that we've kind of explored in several conversations that we've had on this show is the the extent to which the the way in which conflict happens in our politics now is much more performative than actually substantive and this is you know a, a point that that James has made in this conversation and others is that the the fact that we're not actually doing politics in the sense that we're not actually having substantive arguments about policy outcomes uh, it leads to a spillover in which we're just calling each other names because, you know, what, what else What else are we doing? And there's a lot of frustration that we're not actually solving problems and that frustration has to go somewhere. Uh, you know, so to me, the, the question maybe, and this was, you know, I, I had suggested this question, but now I'm rethinking it, is that why does a politician like Donald Trump uh, succeed in this current political environment. And you know, I think that gets back to this question about what what is it that is unique about this political moment? And I think you know, Emily's point that, that there, there's a media environment that really amplifies and rewards conflict. And you know, if you think about the rise of Trump, uh, Trump got a lot of media coverage in 2015 precisely because he was uncivil and he was entertaining. Uh, and, you know, that amplified his you know, ability to, to reach a much broader audience uh, precisely because of that level of, of incivility. Uh, so, you know, I guess the, the, to, to kind of bring this home to think about, you know, what do we do? And is there anything to be done? 
you know, one possibility might be just that, you know, we, we reach a level of exhaustion and, you know, we crave some level of, of normalcy and we want a, 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 a boring Joe Biden uh, presidency uh, where we don't have to to stress about you know, the, the latest conflict and then maybe we cycle back to something that's more entertaining. Um, maybe we need to do something about the media, though I'm not, I, I haven't seen anybody come up with any convincing plan other than make everything nonprofit media. And even there, you're not dealing with social media. Uh, you know, but you know, I think the uh, fundamental problem is we have this partisan conflict that is, you know, a, about uh, you know, uh, uh, who who has power uh, and who gets to triumph over who, not about how to actually resolve some complicated public problems. And that's, you know, it takes, takes me back to this uh, structural hyper-partisanship of, of urban versus rural, red versus blue, uh, you know, fights over what it is to, to be an American. And I feel like until we can find a way to move politics to something more about negotiation and fluid coalitions and less about this, you know, zero-sum irresolvable conflict, we're going to be stuck with a lot of performative incivility in our politics. Just to, to wrap up here, I, I want to encourage our listeners to, to check out this book. It's a fabulous book. And one of the one of the pieces in it that we didn't really get into, but I thought was was very interesting was the notion of substantive disagreement versus kind of a you know how civil you are. And when wrestling with the question of how do we maintain our system, how do we maintain our government, and how do we maintain a civil discourse, you know, Lee's touching on some of the different options and different ways to go about it, and certainly underscoring that it's a uh, that it's something that we should be concerned with. But I, you know, thinking about presidents and politicians, going back to Jimmy Madison, this guy probably, you know, in his personal life, didn't seek out conflict very often. But he had, and more than anyone else in the founding generation, he had a sense of the importance of conflict in sustaining our system and sustaining self-government and conflict creating a, a way to buttress a space where a practice can occur. And when I go back to Teresa Bejan's book, Mere Civility, again, I also want to recommend that to our, to our listeners as well. She really underscores Roger Williams, uh, Roger Williams's concept of civility. And, and she writes in quoting Williams in the book that the best way to maintain civility in a tolerant society is to liberate men's tongues. Because Williams sees civility as a social practice. It's adverbial. It's something that comes about when you do politics. And I think reading this book, it really helps to crystallize, I think, the underlying dysfunction in our society right now, precisely because large numbers of people are no longer doing politics and they're thinking about politics in different ways. And so civility becomes something very different and it presents a new and unique challenge. And I think looking at our system and looking at our government in this fabulous nation in which we live and, and looking at what you know James Madison writes about how we sustain it, it's hard to see how we can wrestle with and deal with this concept if we don't just dive back in and roll up our sleeves. And, and I think that that is... 
that's challenging for some people. And this book really helped me to, to see that and to see how we relate to politics and how we relate to conflict. And I think that we all need to be a little bit more self-reflective in that and also how our neighbors relate to it and how our enemies and our, or not enemies per se, but our, our opponents, the people we disagree with relate to it so that we can then try to meet them halfway and try to deal with uh, our disagreements in a way that we can both find, uh, you know, mutually beneficial. But, but again, I, I really enjoyed this book. I thought it was a fabulous book and I would encourage everyone to check it out. All right, great. Thank you. Thank you so much, Emily, for joining us. I, I echo what James said about the fabulousness of this book. I'm thinking it's going to make its way onto my, uh, my fall syllabus. And, um, you know, it's really uh, provocative and, and interesting. So I appreciate you offering us something that was uh, engaging and entertaining and simultaneously civil and uh, deeply nuanced. So yeah, thank you so much for joining us. This has been Politics in Question. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. The show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute. And our producers are Elena Soros, Shannon Lynch, and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.